0: الحمد <سؤال> <تضح> لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد سكنتني مع بلوغ المرام من اول الحديث لابن ابي مالك رضي الله عنه أَنَّ النَّبِيَّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ سَلَمْ مِحْتَجَ مَا وَصَلَّ وَلَمْ يَتَوَضَّ أَخْرَجَوْ دَرَقُتْنِي وَلَيَّنَهُ This hadith now, Anas رضي الله عنه says that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم he made the hijama, the cupping, the extraction of the blood that we spoke about before that he did that and then he went and prayed without making wudu so he did the cupping and the blood extraction, and then he went and prayed without making wudu. So what is the meaning of this hadith? Well, before we get to that, at the end of it, أَخْرَجَهُ wa قُطْنِي وَلَيَّنَهُ Ad He mentioned this hadith, he narrated this hadith within his book, and he considered it to be weak, because there is a narrator in the chain of narration of this particular hadith, Salih ibn Muqatil, who is weak in his narrations, and as a consequence, al Qutni considered this hadith to be weak. But the hadith itself, الله الله وسلم, that the Prophet did the cupping; he had the extraction of the blood from his body, and as the Sheikh already explained, he الدم بواسطة المحجم. وَكَانَتْ عِنْدَ الْعَرَبُ إِسْتَعْمَلَهَا النَّبِي وَأَخْبَرَ بِأَنَّهَا شِفَاءٌ So the hijama, it is to remove the blood, to extract the blood using this particular utensil, this particular tool. And this extraction of blood was something that was popular amongst the Arabs at that time. And they used to use it. And the Prophet himself used to use it. And he informed the people that there is a cure within it. فقال الشفاء في ثلاث. so he told them that the cure is in three things: شربة عسل، the honey drinking of the honey، وشرطة محجم، and this particular tool that they use for the cupping، i.e. through the cupping process therefore، وكية النار، and also the cauterization when you use a hot rod or a hot piece of steel. Uh, and then you cauterize, you burn a wound or you put that into a wound and that cures that wound or it seals that wound so that the blood doesn't exit etc so he told them that the cure is in these three things but then he mentioned at the end of the hadith anha ummati but I prohibit my nation from this cauterization using the hot steel rods into the wounds to prevent the bleeding etc and this hadith is mentioned in Sahih al-Bukhari. عند العرب لها أوقات يعرفونها، فإنهم لا يحجمون في كل And this hijama, this cupping, this extraction of blood, the Sheikh mentions that the Arabs they have they used to have specific times when they used to do that cupping. It was known to them what the best times are for the performance of that cupping. So they didn't used to do it at any time, all the time. But they knew that there was only specific times of the year uh, when it was suitable and appropriate to do this cupping to a person. And that's when they used to do it. And then the sheikh also mentions that when a person does the cupping, the one who is doing it must be someone who has experience and he knows what he's doing, he knows how much of the blood to extract, so that it won't harm the person. As for an individual who doesn't have knowledge of that, then maybe he might do this extraction of blood, this cupping, and harm the person that he's doing it to. He may take out blood which is in excess of what should be taken out. So a person may be affected by that, he might even die as a consequence of the wrong type of cupping. So it is something that an individual with experience does, as the Sheikh mentions. So the Hadith mentions that the Prophet ﷺ he made this hijama, he had the cupping done to himself, was sala wa lam and then he went and prayed and didn't make wudu. فهذا يدل على أن خروج الدم من البدن لا ينقض الوضوء بحجامة وبغيرها من جراحة أو صحب الإبر أو صحب بالإبر المعروفة الآن أو غير ذلك. So this indicates, the Shaykh says, uh, Shaykh Saleh al-Fawzan, Allah ta'ala, that the exit of blood from the body, it doesn't break the wudu. Whether that exit of blood, that blood coming out of the body, happens because of hijama, because of the cupping, or because of a wound or injury, or because of the needles when they extract blood sometimes for a blood sample or a blood test and these types of things don't break the wudu with the exit of blood in that way that's what the hadith indicates the hadith indicates that however the shaykh says there is a difference of opinion on this issue al qawl al awwal the first statement regarding this issue is la wudu illa al min al kana The first opinion is that the exit of blood, blood coming out of a person, does not break the wudu except if it comes out from the private region. Either the frontal private parts or the rear private parts. If the blood comes out from one of those two exit ways, then that breaks the wudu. That nullifies the wudu. Or if urine or feces exits a person uh, from some other exit, not the actual private parts, maybe in some other way it exits, then that would also break the wudu. But here, the point being this opinion states that if the blood exits from a person, it doesn't break the wudu unless it is exiting from the private parts, front or the back. كَأَنْ يُخْرِجُهَا مِنْ فِي جِسْمِ إِنْسَانِ مَرِيضٍ إِنْ سَدَّ أَحَدَ عِنْدَهُ As for, we just mentioned that if the feces or the urine comes out of a person in some other way, not from the private parts, that can also break the wudu. For example, sometimes when people have certain illnesses, certain medical problems, there may be some type of medical issue with the private region. So they make some other type of opening for the uh, feces the waste and the urine to come out of. ففتح له تكون مخرجا للبول او الغائط فخروجهما البول من الوضوء. So sometimes the doctors they make some other tubes and some other openings from where this fluid this uh, urine and this uh, waste it comes out of a person because of medical reasons it can't come out the normal way. When it comes out in that way from these other tubes and these other exit uh, areas from the body, then that breaks the wudu, because it is urine and feces. But blood, if it comes out from anywhere else in the body, it doesn't break the wudu. That is the first opinion. And that's why the sheikh says, <laughs> So now here is a situation with the private parts the frontal and the rear private parts if blood comes out of them that nullifies the wudu but if blood comes out of anywhere else in the body they do a blood test so they take it out with a needle or you fall and you injure yourself and it bleeds or you do the cupping and it bleeds blood coming out anywhere else in the body other than the private parts, the two private parts, then it doesn't break your wudu. Feces and urine, when it comes out to the private parts, obviously it nullifies the wudu. But even if it comes out from other than the private parts, it nullifies the wudu. So everybody understand the difference there? Um... And one of the evidences that if blood exits from any other part of the body other than the two private parts, that it doesn't break the wudu, it doesn't nullify the wudu, is the example of the companions when they used to go and fight in the battles and they would be injured and blood would be coming out of them, and it's not narrated at all that they used to go and repeat the wudu for their prayers. But inna amir al-mu'minina Umar radiyaAllahu anhu l'ma tu'ina wa hui yisalli akmala salatahu ba'dan umira Abdurrahman ibn Awuf an ya umman nas ba'dan amara Abdurrahman ibn Awuf an ya umman nas wa akmala salatahu ma'an nas ma'anna hu kana jurhuhu yafgab daman fahada dhalilun ala anna kharuj addam in baqiyat al-badn la yanqadhu al wudu wa hada wal-rajih the Shaykh gives the example of the Amir al muminin Umar ibn al-Khattab, عنه, when he was stabbed whilst he was praying. So when he was stabbed whilst he was praying, then it is mentioned that he prayed thereafter. He continued to pray thereafter, even though from that stab wound, blood was flowing out of it. Blood was flowing out of this stab wound, but he continued to pray even after that. Uh, after he had commanded Abdurrahman rahman ibn Auf to then lead the prayer with the people. Then he continued and he completed his prayer, even though blood was flowing out from that wound where he'd been stabbed. But that didn't cause him to have to go and repeat the wudu. So from this evidence and other evidences, the scholars from the first opinion have concluded that wudu that blood if it comes out from anywhere else in the body other than the two private parts then it doesn't break the wudu the second opinion anna al-kharij min the al-badan idha kana najisan min dam aw qayy wa kana katheeran fa innahu yanqidh al-wudu qiyasan ala ma akhraja min as-sabeelayn أو أو the second opinion is that if whatever exits, whatever the fluid may be, whatever the material may be that exits from the rest of the body, the two private parts we've said, if it exits from there, your wudu is nullified whatever exits from there, your wudu is nullified. But other than that area now, if something exits from other parts of your body, if whatever exits, whatever comes out, is something which is impure from blood or vomit, and it is a lot, then they say it does nullify the wudu. If something comes out from the other parts of your body somewhere, and it is a lot, and it is something impure from the blood or the vomit, or other affairs of that nature, and it is a lot, then they say it does break the wudu. And they say that is because they use the comparison to the two private parts. They say from the private parts, if blood came out of them, then that would nullify the wudu. So similarly, if it's a lot that comes out from somewhere else, that should also break the wudu. So they made this type of comparison. And also they used the previous hadith that we already mentioned, that a person who is afflicted by vomiting, or the qalas that we mentioned, that light type of vomit, or the bleeding, then he should go and make the wudu, and then come back and complete his prayer from where he left off. That hadith that we did already. They use these types of narration, and so they have this opinion, that if it exits from somewhere else in the body, and it is a lot, and it is something which is impure, then it does break the wudu. Therefore, this issue has two opinions. The Sheikh says, So the issue really is about if it is impure and it is a lot. If it is impure and it is a lot, then one opinion says that does nullify the wudu if it comes out from wherever. However, what if it was impure, but only a little bit? In that case, then there's no difference of opinion. In that case, they are agreed. That doesn't affect anything. That doesn't break the wudu. If something comes out from the other parts of the body, even if it was impure, some impure type of liquid, but it's not a lot, It's only a minute amount, a small amount. Then there is no difference on that, but the difference is if it was a large amount. Because it's mentioned, the narration about Ibn Umar that he had a certain type of wound, and if he were to squeeze that wound, then some of the blood and some of the liquids would come out of that wound. But it is narrated that he wouldn't make wudu from having done that. He wouldn't break his prayer or leave his prayer to go make the wudu, even though blood would come out from that injury. Sometimes you might have uh, like a mole or something of this nature that if you were to press it or squeeze it, then blood or other liquids may come out. Then that type of thing, it doesn't break the wudu. And Umar ibn Khattab in that narration, radiallahu anhu, it didn't break his wudu. So the difference is about if it is a lot and it is impure. If it is only a small amount, then there is no issue with that. Uh, then there is the issue, The issue of something exiting from the other parts of the body if it is not urine or feces. That we already mentioned. Urine or feces, even if it comes out from the tubes and other parts, that nullifies the wudu. But other things that exit from here, أَنَّهُ najisan. Then like we just said the Shaykh just mentions it again that if it is a lot and it is impure, this other liquid that is coming out from the other parts of the body, then it is something that nullifies the wudu. And that is the Sheikh says the opinion of Al-Imam, uh, or the Hanabila. And if it is a small amount, then it does not have any effect. And also if it is impure. Uh, If it is not impure, meaning it's something pure, like spit, saliva, that exits from a person's body. It is a liquid that is exiting from your body, but nobody is going to say that that nullifies your wudu, because saliva isn't something which is impure. So here the issue is about something impure and in large amounts. Some of them say it breaks the wudu; others say it does not. There's an exception to this. That there is something which exits from a person which is pure, but it does nullify the wudu. What is the item that exits from a person which is pure, but it does nullify the wudu nevertheless? Hmm. So the seminal liquid, the seminal liquid, then that is pure. But if it exits from a person, then that is something that nullifies the wudu. Then the sheikh, he concludes by mentioning some of the benefits from this narration therefore. The summary of it then is that, if something exits from the two private parts, your wudu is nullified. Blood, other types of stones or whatever it may be from illness, feces, urine, clearly, all of that breaks the wudu if it exits from the two private parts. Then the issue is, what if something exits from outside of the two private parts, other parts of your body, injuries, whatever it might be. If it is urine and feces, then again it breaks the wudu. If it is not, then there's a difference of opinion. Some of them said, if it is a lot and it is impure, then yes, it nullifies the wudu. And others, they said, no, something which exits from the remainder of the body that is not feces or urine, then it does not break the wudu. Uh, so the issues to benefit from them, the Shaykh says firstly, The first thing the Shaykh says is the permissibility of using medicines for cure. The permissibility of using medicines for cure. Because some people they may misunderstand and say that using medicines indicates your lack of trust and dependence in Allah, then that is not the reality. The medicine is a means. Your trust and your dependence and your reliance is upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who will cure you, not the medicine itself. But the medicine is a means that has been provided and understood and tested. But this is a means to that cure. A means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has provided you. And taking the means does not nullify or negate your dependence upon Allah. So this hadith indicates the permissibility of curing yourself and treating yourself by using medicines. Here for example the hijama is a type of medicinal practice. The hijama, the cupping is a type of medicinal practice. And the Prophet sallallahu used to do it. And even commanded the people to use uh, medicines and treatments and cures. And so there is a hadith in Abu Dawood where the Prophet ﷺ said that tadawu, tadawu, meaning use medicines and medicinal cures and treatments etc. And do not do this medicinal practice in things which are haram. As long as you don't use any haram means within this medicinal practice, then do the medicinal practice. So that is something which is permissible. However the majority of the scholars they say in the issue of the ruling on it. If somebody is ill is it an obligation upon them to have to take medicine? Or can they leave it if they want and say I'm just not going to take it I'm just going to keep my trust in Allah completely I'm not even going to take the medicine. Correct? The majority of the scholars are of the opinion that if a person was to say I'm not going to take the medicine I'll continue as I am I'll make dua to Allah without taking the medicine it's permissible to do so the scholars the majority of them have said meaning that it is not obligatory upon you to have to do or to implement or to practice or engage in those medicinal practices for this particular illness that may be upon you so an individual who leaves that then there is no (coughs) criticism upon him that is what the majority of the scholars, the Jumhur, have said on that issue. The second issue يدل الْحَدِيثَ Hadith alamashruriyatil Akhbil Asbab This is what we just briefly mentioned that the hadith indicates the legislation for taking the means that have been provided to you, for taking the means which have been provided for the fulfilment of certain uh, illnesses. Or medicinal practices, than to take those means. Because that does not negate or nullify your dependence and trust in Allah. And this is a great principle in the Sharia. And a person, he can cure himself and practice medicine, meaning implement that medicine upon himself, and at the same time, he can still have his tawakkul upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It does not mean that a person who is going to take medicine that we now say, he has left and dropped his tawakkul in Allah and put it into the medicine. No. A person can take the medicine as a means, as a means that has been provided to him. And he recognizes that it is only a means. It's only something which has been provided as a means. It is not the cure itself. The cure will come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Maybe two people, they have a headache, both of them take the paracetamol, only one gets cured, one does not. It is not the paracetamol that will cure that person's headache. That is a means to the cure. It is a means that has been provided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that means it is permissible to take. But the actual cure will come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So an individual does not have his trust and dependence and reliance upon the means. So when you go to the hospital, your trust and your dependence isn't upon the doctor. It's not upon the surgeon. There are people who will aid and they will do as they are able to do. But your trust and your dependence is upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the end result and the cure and the treatment that will come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there is no contradiction between taking the means to doing something and uh, still having your trust and dependence and reliance on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala an individual who negates the means, negates the means and refuses to accept them, then that is in reality a contradiction to the principles of this religion and the aqidah of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. Rather that is a type of, it is a type of weakness or a type of, Action which indicates the lack of ability from that person that he is not implementing or carrying out the necessary acts or the necessary means to get to something rather it is upon a person that he does that to do what is required to get to what he wants to get to as some of the scholars used to mention that there is no point a person saying that I want to get married or rather the example they give you even better, they say there is no point a person saying I wish I could have a child, I want to have a child, I want to have children. But he doesn't even bother to go and look for a wife. So if he doesn't even bother to go and look for a wife then where is he going to get his children from? So this is the meaning of go and take the means. If you want to have children then go look for the means which is to get married and have a wife. And then perhaps the children afterwards will come. But if an individual doesn't even take those means, doesn't even get up to go and look to get a wife or to get married, then what is the purpose of him sitting there saying, I wish I could have children? That indicates something which is non-intellectual. It is something which makes no sense for a person to desire that and not to take the means to get to that. Rather, there are means that Allah has provided, so an individual needs to take those means and use them as assistance to get to the goal. Whereas always his dependence is still in Allah. The second issue is And the Shaykh says the point of the hadith is that the blood which exits from the remainder of the body then that does not break the wudu and the differences as we already mentioned uh, with regards to that. The next hadith then Hadith Mu'awiyah رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم العينان وكاء السه فإذا نامت العينان استطلق الوكاء استطلق الوكاء رواه أحمد الطبراني وزاد ومن نام فليتوضأ وهذه زيادة في هذا الحديث عند أبي داود من حديث علي دون قوله استطلق this particular hadith now, the hadith of رضي الله Anhu, where he explains concerning the issue of sleep. Here now we've already mentioned something related and the meaning will become apparent as the narration continues. Safwar ibn Assal. We mentioned the hadith of Safwan ibn Asad, prior to this regarding wiping over the socks, and he said that the Prophet ﷺ ida kunna safaran allah khifafana illa min that the Prophet ﷺ used to command us if you we were traveling to not remove our socks, uh, the leather socks. Except from the major impurity, otherwise from the feces, or the urine, or the sleeping, we didn't have to take it off. Also we mentioned previously, the hadith of Anas, عنه, that the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, عنهم, they used to be waiting for the prayer, and their heads would be dropping from sleep and tiredness, waiting for the prayer. But they didn't used to go and make the wudu. And this hadith that we have now, the hadith of Mu'awiyah, it is in the same topic. The topic of sleep. And what that does to your wudu. Here then it says, Al-Aynan, Al-Aynan, al ainan, sah Al-Aynan, the two eyes. Al-Aynan, the two eyes. Uh, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Alam naj'al lahu wa walisana wa shafatayn. Did we not make for him two eyes and a tongue and two lips? So, Aynan is the two eyes. Wika, Al Aynan, Wika. Wika, here it is referring to if you have, for example, a pouch. When you have like a leather pouch, and on the top you have the string that you tie it with. You have like a pouch, sometimes they have small bags or a pouch. And there's a, a string that goes into the top, and if you want to tie it, you tie the string, and that closes the pouch. And if you want to open it, then you loosen the string and it opens. That string at the top, that is the wika. That is known as the, the connector or the closer, the string that will close that particular pouch. as al bihi halqatu dabr Wal-ma'ana anna al tamna' kharij فَإِذَا نَامَ فَإِنَّهُ لَا يُحِسُّ بِنَفْسِهِ فَرُبَّمَا يَخْرُجُ مِنْهُ شَيْءٍ The sah is referring to the anus. It is referring to the rear private parts. So here, what does that mean then? The two eyes, they are the string of the rear private part. The two eyes are the string, the the lock, the two eyes are the lock, the other thing that locks the rear private part. Meaning that when you're awake, the two eyes, when you're awake and you're alert, then obviously you know if anything is exiting or not from the private region, from the private parts, from the rear private parts. You are aware, when you're awake, you are aware. When you are asleep though, when the eyes are asleep, Now it is as if the lock is no longer present. The eyes are asleep, meaning you are no longer aware of what's going on. Perhaps something may exit from the private region whilst you are asleep, and you don't recognize that, and you don't realize that. So whilst you're awake, you know what's going on. But when you're asleep, the two eyes are closed, then you're not aware of what is occurring and maybe something is exiting or it is uh, uh, removing itself from the body, and that may break the wood when you're not aware of that. So sleeping, when you're asleep, it is a time when there is a possibility due to your unconsciousness that something may exit from the rear private region and you're not aware. And that is just like if you have the pouch and you loosen the string, And then you're carrying the pouch, it's possible something may fall out. When you loosen the string of that pouch and you're carrying it open from the top, something may fall out. But when you tie the string from the top and you tie it and the pouch comes together, now it's closed and nothing will come out. When you're awake, that is the lock. But when you're asleep, the lock has been loosened. And you're no longer aware now if something is exiting or not. Um... this the sheikh says wa huwa min bab al-tashbih 'inda al-balaghiyin fa insan fi halat al-yaqdh bi halat al Muaka al-mukka aw al-kays na'am wa fi halat al-nawm shubbiha this is a, a, a comparison that has been made the comparison of a pouch with a string on it and the comparison of the private area, the rear private area, and the eyes being awake and alert. When the eyes are closed, then it's as if that is open and loose, and you're not aware of what is exiting or not. In one narration of the hadith, Ahmad and Tabarani, they added, فَمَنْ Nama So therefore, whoever goes to sleep, when you wake up, make your wudu. Why? Because when you're asleep, one of the things that can occur is that maybe something exits from your private region. And that is something that nullifies the wudu. So when you're asleep, because you don't know when you wake up, make the wudu. هذه زيادة تبين المقصود من أصل الحديث أصل This explains the point of the hadith. That when you're asleep, you don't know what's exiting. So as a consequence, make the wudu if you ever fall asleep. Meaning when you wake up, then make the wudu. فَالنَّتِيجَةُ مِنْ نَامَ مَنْ نَامَ نَتِيجَةَ لِلْكَلَامُ السَّابِقُ وَلِذَلِكَ أَوْرَدَهَا المصنّف هُنَا So that is the point of this, that when a person goes to sleep, then it is as if that pouch is open now, you don't know if anything's going to exit or not, so as a consequence you make the wudu' However, these ahadith, the scholars have said that there are weakness in their chains of narration. As Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar himself says, وَكِلَ الْإِسْنَادِينَ ضَعْفِ Or في كِلَ الْإِسْنَادِينَ ضَعْفِ In both of the chains of narration, there is weakness. Then there was the small narration within that, إِنَّمَا الْوُضُوءُ عَلَى مَنْ نَامَ مُتَّجْعَنَ That the wudu is only upon someone who goes to sleep lying down. Remember we said before, one of the opinions was that if you go to sleep sitting up, it doesn't break your wudu. If you go to sleep in some position where you are in control of your body then it doesn't break your wudu But when you're lying down, you're asleep, you're relaxed, you're out of control of your body then it breaks your wudu But they say if you sleep in a position where you are in control of your body sitting up in this way in some way where you are in charge of your body in this posture then it doesn't break your wudu But when you're lying down and you're relaxed and you've let go of the control of your body relaxing, lying down then that breaks your wudu In this hadith, that's what it says Whoever lies, whoever uh, the wudu is only upon the one who lies down and goes to sleep. This is also given strength by the hadith of Anas radiallahu anhu. Because he said the companions used to go to sleep or they used to be tired and sleep was overcoming them rather. And their heads were going down etc. How? Lying down or sitting up? They were sitting up and they never used to make their wudu. So that would indicate too that if a person is falling asleep, sitting up, you don't have to make the wudu. But only if you're lying down. That's an opinion that some of the scholars have mentioned on that issue. So now then, the Shaykh says, in conclusion, sleep, the issue of sleep. We've mentioned the hadith before about the companions, etc. we mentioned this hadith now. What's the issue on sleep as a whole? The issue on sleep. It breaks the wudu of a person with certain conditions. Sleeping breaks the wudu of a person with certain conditions. Firstly, أَن يَكُونَ كَثِيرًا Firstly, that the sleep has to be deep sleep. When you're asleep, it must be deep sleep for your wudu to be broken. And that is understood by the hadith where it says نَامَةِ الْعَيْنَانِ The eyes have gone to sleep. When the eyes have gone to sleep, meaning you're in deep sleep now. So that is the first condition for sleep to break the wudu, it must be deep sleep. Ashart al Thani, the second condition, and yekuna ذلكa min muttaja'in, omen fi hukmin muttaja', kal muttake ala shaykh. Amma ladhi who are jealous, mutamakkin min nafsi, father la wudu alayhi. Father ma yufidul hadith bi rewayatihi ma ala hadith sabiqa, hadith safwan wa hadith anasa The second condition is, in accordance to these narrations, that a person must be lying down asleep. Lying down asleep. Or something similar to that. Similar to that meaning you're leaning against something, leaning against this and falling asleep. So you're not in control of your body now. Your body is gone. It's lying down, it's leaning against this pillar, leaning against this uh, uh, cushion, whatever it might be. You've lost control of your body now leaning against something else, against this uh, member or the pillar or something. If, however, you are in control of your body yourself, there's nothing to lean on, there's nothing to lie down on, you're upright, you're sitting in control of your body yourself, and you fall asleep, then that, according to these narrations, does not break the wudu. So the conditions are that you are lying down or in some other posture, some other form of sleep where you are out of control of your body you're lying down against something, leaning against something, relaxing, where you're not in control of your body, then that type of sleep, and if it is deep, it breaks the wudu. But if the sleep is not deep, and on top of that, you are actually in control of your body when you are asleep, then that doesn't break the wudu, and that's what seems to be indicated from these narrations. But, like we said, there is a difference of opinion on this issue. In brief, again, the sheikh mentions the difference of opinion now regarding sleeping. أن النوم لا مطلقاً بدليل كانت رؤوسهم وفي يسمع لهم ولا One opinion is that sleep doesn't break the wudu at all. Some scholars have taken the opinion that sleeping doesn't break the wudu at all, and they used the narration that the companions used to be sleeping and snoring could be heard from them, and there was no uh, wudu for them to have to go make again before the prayer. So they used it like that generally to say, that's it, there's no breaking of the wudu with whatever type of sleep. The second opinion is that sleeping breaks the wudu in all cases. Irrelevant of all the details that we just mentioned, the second opinion generally is that sleep breaks the wudu in all cases. And they used some of these narrations like the hadith of Safwan ibn Asal, where he said that the Prophet ﷺ said, you can keep your socks on, you can wipe over them as long as uh, the sleep as long as, uh, as long as the major impurity doesn't occur But as for other things like sleep Then you can continue to wipe over your socks So they said there you go That indicates the sleep doesn't break the wudu Whatever type of sleep it might be That's one opinion The third opinion أَنَّ النَّوْمَ الْيَسِيرُ مِنَ الْقَاعِدِ وَالْمُتَمَكِّنْ مِنْ نَفْسِهِ لَا يَنْقُضُ الْوُضُوءِ Third opinion is that if a person is in very light sleep and he is sitting down in control of himself, or sitting in some other way, or in some other posture where he's in control of himself, not leaning against something and his body is gone upon that, he's in control of himself, and it's a light sleep, then that doesn't break the wudu. وَأَنَّ النَّوْمَ الْكَثِيرَ And that heavy deep sleep, من Min nafsihi annahu And if it is a deep sleep from a person who is not in control of himself, he's lying down, he's leaning against something, and he goes into deep sleep, that breaks the wudu. and this is the rajih, uh, the strongest opinion the sheikh says uh, from all of these opinions that if a person fell asleep in control of himself and it was a light sleep, then it doesn't break the wudu. But if you lose control of yourself, you're lying down, you're leaning against something in deep sleep, then that breaks the wudu. Um, then the shaykh goes on to mention that there are some other issues to be mentioned. Um, المسألة أولا الوضو من العلم كثير منها لا حتى أو يجد ريحا. This is the next hadith. The hadith of Ibn Abbas رضي الله عنهما. Uh, the previous one was the hadith of Ibn Abbas also. إنما الوضوء على من نام متجعا. That wudu is only for the one who sleeps lying down. That's the issue that we've just discussed. Now on the next hadith of Ibn Abbas رضي الله عنه, uh, عنهما. أن رسول الله عليه وسلم قال يأتي أحدكم الشيطان في صلاته فينفق في إليه أنه أحدث. This we mentioned briefly before that a shaitan the shaitan might come to somebody whilst he's in his prayer and he blows the shaitan blows into the sitting place of that individual in his prayer. So that individual imagines that he's broken wind. He thinks now that he's broken wind from the whispering of the shaitan and the and the in the blowing of the shaitan. And in reality he hasn't broken wind. So if he finds that he has this doubt now because of the shaitan whispering, then he shouldn't go until he hears a sound or he smells something. Uh, and this is in the Musnad of al bazar but the origin of the hadith is in Al-Bukhari and Muslim. That we already mentioned that the exit of wind from a person, it breaks the wudu. And that is something agreed upon by the scholars. That the exit of wind, if it actually exits, then that breaks the wudu. Also that the sleeping, it breaks the wudu from a person who is not in control of himself, he is lying down without any uh, control over himself. Um, Also, we can understand that sleep in of itself isn't the thing that breaks the wudu, but because of what may occur within that sleep. And that is because something may exit from a person whilst he's sleeping. So because of what may occur, then that is the reasoning for the breaking of the wudu in that sleep. Not the sleep in of itself, as the Shaykh mentions here. Also, Also, you can compare everyone else who is in the same state as a sleeping person with the same ruling. So somebody who's unconscious. Something happens, he falls unconscious. He's lost his consciousness. That's the same as a person who's asleep. Somebody who's asleep, he's lost his consciousness. So that is the same ruling. Somebody who falls unconscious for whatever reason, the wudu is nullified. Or somebody who takes some material, some food, some content, some types of whatever it may be, which causes his mind to be lost certain types of drugs or whatever it may be. If an individual took something of that nature that caused his mind to become blurred and lost, then it's as if he's unconscious too. Then that similarly breaks the wudu. Because all of these are similar to a person who is in the state of sleep. They they, they similarly will not know if anything is exiting or not. Uh, Anesthetic for example. Somebody who has to have anesthetic and they are caused to become unconscious for some operation. So now their wudu is broken because they were unconscious during that period for that anesthetic. So these types of things are, the similar, are similar to sleeping. Uh, the final hadith regarding uh, the explanation of this issue, the issue of the shaitan coming and blowing and whispering to that individual to the extent that the person then thinks that he has actually released some wind. The shaitan comes and whispers and he blows and the person himself thinks he's released some wind. So here the shaykh says that this is the same as the hadith that we mentioned before. A very similar hadith, we mentioned it already. That if a person thinks he's broken some wind then don't leave the prayer until you hear a sound or you smell some smell. And that is because the shaitan may be whispering to that person. So until you are certain, then your wudu cannot be broken by doubt. Remember we said that certainty is what you build your rulings upon. Uh, and so here the shaykh says, "Hatta yasm'a سَوْتًا Meaning until he is certain that he has heard a sound, or he has smelt some smell, then he cannot go and he should not leave because that certainty cannot be removed by that doubt. muriha, um, And this is a principle which will relax you and cause you to become comfortable in your affairs. Knowing that your wudu is not broken except by certainty. And that the whisperings, they are not something that can break your wudu. yaqulu uh, Rather, you say to the shaitan, you have lied. From these whisperings. There is a narration which indicates that when a person has these whispers, he can say to himself in his heart, in his mind, he can say to himself that you have lied, O oh Shaitan, in his own mind. When he feels these whisperings from the Shaitan that he's broken the wudu, and in reality there's no smell, there's no sound, there's no nothing to indicate that the wudu has actually broken and the narration indicates a person can say in himself that you have lied. As for saying it out loud, that's, poss- that's not possible. If you're in your prayer, you're not going to say out loud, you have lied. Talking about the shaitan. Well, that is something that a person can do in of himself. As for that which is in the heart, then it is not speech, so that does not affect the prayer in that way. So in this hadith, then the issue is that the wind which is released from a person it breaks the wudu. Also, in it tells you how the shaitan he attempts to misguide the people in every possible way. And he comes to them from their desires and from the haram affairs. والوس- uh, or he comes to a person in terms of these whispers, Al And that is the content here. And so Allah's curse be upon him, he does not leave the person alone. So a Muslim must cut the path of the shaitan and not look towards the shaitan. And he must belide the shaitan when he comes to whisper to him. And rather the Muslim builds his actions upon certainty not to the whisperings of the shaitan. And that is the final affair regarding that hadith. And that hadith like we said, we already mentioned it before. And with that concludes the chapter of the nullifiers of the wudu. They are the several different types of nullifiers of wudu that we mentioned now. And inshallah at the beginning of next lesson we'll briefly recap through all of them as a list. All of the different types. So try to recap that and revise that yourselves. What were all the different nullifiers of wudu? Try to think about what all of those different nullifiers of wudu were. And inshallah if you remember the beginning of next lesson, we'll do a quick recap before starting the next chapter, which is regarding using the toilet. What are the rulings in Islam for a person when he goes to use the toilet? How is that to be done? What are the rulings? What are the permissible things? The impermissible things? All of that chapter will come next, inshallah, Taala, from next lesson.